bring us to a close. Thank you. 
this. And stay safe. Stay uh, high. Dry. And uh, thanks for listening. Hey, see you at the record fair. This is Freeform Radio, WFMU and Stars, WMFU, Mount Hope, Worldwide, WFMU.org. Bye.
Welcome to Radio Free Culture. I'm Andreas Lindsay, the Managing Director of the Free Music Archive at WFMU. For this show, I'm speaking with independent journalist Tim Poole. Of course, he's got his galoshes on and he's out covering Hurricane Sandy right now. And we even have information on WFMU.org about how you can track his coverage. But for tonight, we'll listen back to a conversation we had from the rally in Union Square Park. He was there doing what he's now world famous for. He uses live streaming technology to cover protests around the world, and his work with Occupy Wall Street gave him all sorts of notoriety, including being featured in Time's Person of the Year. Occupy Wall Street is famously criticized for lacking a clear message. And when activist and journalist Timothy Poole arrived with his camera, as police evicted protesters from Jakarta Park on November 15th, that was about to change. For the protesters here may be among the most watched in history thanks to a new breed of journalists covering what's going on in the street. Alright, so let's get more information on exactly what happened last night in Anaheim from somebody who was there. Yes, yes, many journalists are covered in last night. And his method demonstrated the power of a new kind of media. One that helped reframe how mainstream news outlets view the Occupy movement and its message. I met up with Tim at an anti-police brutality rally on the steps of Union Square Park. Hey everyone, this is Tim Cass and you're listening to WFNU. Before we got started with our interview, we were walking around the crowd. And we were approached by a big guy with the face of a little boy. He's holding a plastic guy fox mask in one hand and a camcorder in the other. And he just has crumbs all over his mouth. 
He asked if he could film us and asked what website Tim's from. Tim Cash? So, um, where do you find us? TimCast.com? Just a year ago, on a fall day like this one, 
that a lot of this very crowd was huddled in Zuccotti Park together. That's when Tim went from being a guy in the crowd to an internationally known broadcaster. So I, I came down to Occupy Wall Street just to understand, you know, that my, my thing is observation, it's always been. And I was just filming with my cell phone and taking pictures with my cell phone. And then once I discovered I could actually do a live broadcast with my cell phone, I started doing that. So do you think of that as an important moment where you crossed over in some way? Um, I guess into the public light. You know, when I was when I was documenting before, it wasn't really for anything but myself. In, a, in the sense that I would watch it later, and then when I started stri uh, live streaming, it became about. Essentially, it was still the same thing. I, I was streaming mostly because my, my footage would, would be harder to delete if uh, taken from me. And uh, when people just started watching, it became a live report. I became a journalist right there. So then, what do you feel like makes you a journalist? Like, do you have principles of journalism that you follow? Is there an ethical code that you've created for yourself around this practice? Well, I just, I just, you know, I have my own personal morals. Everyone's morals are subjective, but we mostly agree on a lot of similar ones. And it's a, it's a funny, it's a funny issue, you know. My thing is about just showing what's happening. You know, I, I'm not here with, with either group on here. I'm not a protester, I'm not a politician, I'm not a police officer. I'm not, you know, running security for an event. I'm not organizing an event. I'm just here with a camera. And if you want to know what's happening, I'll do my best to just tell you. But the funny thing is, you know, people often question the ethics or the like the professionalism of independent journalists and especially citizen journalists when you have pundits and you've got you've, you've got reporters for these big outlets who are so obviously biased and they have they think that these reporters, these anchors, 
obviously biased and they have the nerve to call other journalists unprofessional or lacking principles and lacking ethics. And that just makes me fuck on my mouth a little bit. So, from Occupy Wall Street, that's when you kind of became this idea of Tim Cast. And then from there, you went on to some other protests where you brought the same practice of live streaming what was going on. Um, tell us about some of those events and some notable moments there. The Trayvon Martin rally was particularly significant, so everyone's familiar with that story. And down in, in New York, in Union Square, this was probably the first major event that was outside the... I mean, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily say it was uh, political. It, it, it was over... Well, it, it, it's hard to say. It's hard to define exactly what the... The rally was about awareness for essentially the, the racism that's in our systems and, and justice being sought for the Trayvon Martin in this case. Whatever your take on the issue might be. So that, that you know, that was a a big shift. It was kind of, it was a very emotional raw protest that wasn't necessarily seeking political change, but more about a, a cultural change. That was, that was really interesting. There was also the riots in Anaheim that I had been at. And this, again, was in, in, in response to uh, a teenager who was shot by a police officer. And the community came out in this powerful, you know, raw emotion down toward, you know, I guess, started to riot. The police came in force with white weapons, which created this, this escalation between the community and the police. So the, the locals started gathering around in response to seeing these, these officers everywhere, and then started throwing rocks, and the police started firing at them with white weapons, and it, just, I, I myself ended up getting shot at by, by police, and that was probably the most memorable instance for me. Where do you see yourself falling when, when you're in that moment where you're live streaming from these protests? Are you on the side of the 
protest your genocide, please, how do you strike a balance? Like, what, what are you after in that moment to tell the world about? I'm not on anyone's side, I mean, everyone thinks they're the center of the universe. Everyone thinks they have the right answer to all of our problems. I don't, I don't think either of those things. I think if anyone is going to find what the answers are, they first need the data to be as clean as possible. So when it comes to a big protest event, I'm not going to yell and protest and say, here's the, here's the way to save the world. And I'm not going to... I mean, honestly, the police feel the same way. They think they're saving the world. I want to try and show everyone exactly what happens so that they can analyze that data. They can take it in and say, you know what? We know what happened. Here's the right way to, to change, you know. The decision's not gonna come from me as to how to make the, fix the problem, but I will help in, in transferring the data to those people. What does live streaming offer that other ways of documenting an event can't possibly give you. There, there's something about watching in real time that, that creates an interest. You don't know what's gonna happen, so you, you're compelled to watch. And this, this interest is really good because, you know, if nothing happens, it's an if you if you have your standard video and nothing and you know nothing is going to happen and someone tells you you're going to watch for 15 minutes and nothing's going to happen, they're not going to watch it. They're not going to know what happened, regardless of you know how significant or insignificant it was. But when it's live, you have no idea, and you you have to know. But more importantly, with these in individual channels in live streaming, and these videos that can be online, I can broadcast for hours on end. You know, um, my longest was 21 hours, but frequently, Major events I'll do 14 to 15 hours of live broadcasting. It's totally typical. What this does is it allows people who are interested in watching the events unfold throughout the entire day, they're able to do that. In the old media form, you might get maybe three or four minutes of live coverage from the event before the network switches to a different story. 
why do you think you're, you're the only guy with the camera doing this in a lot of these situations? I wouldn't, well, first of all, I'm not the only one, but I would say there are only a handful of live streamers who, who consider themselves to be independent and who consider themselves to be actual journalists who are, you know, pushing the envelope. These, these, you know, I've talked to news because I've talked to CBS, I've talked to NBC, and uh, aside from the fact that they're far behind in, uh, in the technology, When they do finally realize, okay, so there is something we can do with cellular data and live streaming over the internet, they get these big, these big companies and consultants who then sell them $60,000 wigs that are totally unnecessary. And they're walking around this big bulky setup and they think, hey, look at me, you know, I'm streaming. And then they look at me and I'm carrying a cell phone with, you know, 4G LTE. And we, we, we literally will have the same bit weight. So, you know, there, there are benefits to having a rig that has 16 modems and costs $60,000, but it's definitely not worth $60,000. What, what is in your toolkit? Well, a year ago, was, uh, it was much different from what I'm doing today. So I, I, I have different Tears, I suppose. The first and foremost is literally just a cell phone and a battery. And uh, the, the batteries are about a pound, so I can carry a tiny, a, a tiny bag, a little travel bag, and it carries everything I need to do a live broadcast. As for right now, I actually have an entire production studio in my bed. I've got a DSLR camera, I've got a leveling mic, I've got a shotgun mic, I've got uh, different, many different phones to access different networks, and also gain uh, access to cellular networks around the world. And I've got a solid-state computer, so I can do the video editing on the spot as well. I've a hard drives, everything, and the bag is probably about 25 to 30 pounds. Wow, you're prepared. We're, we're here for Radio Free Culture talking and, uh... Union Square Park. Why, why are we here today? There is a rally happening right now 
It's the 17th Annual Anti-Police Brutality Rally in March. It happens every year, and here we are. So what's your approach when you come to a rally like this? It's pretty simple. Observe, try and take as much in as possible. I'll look for people who seem to be organizing and people who seem to be watching. And I'll, I'll talk to them a bit about what's going on and where they think's gonna happen. And then when I start feeling the you know, the energy rising when it seems like the event is about to kick on. I'll announce via Twitter that I'm gonna go live. And then I start broadcasting. How many people do you reach when you, you announce that you're going live? Entirely depends, I have no idea. I mean, on Twitter, I have just just about 26,000 followers, but based on analytics and uh, other services, I, I, I potentially reach 50,000, and during a typical broadcast at a major event, I'll have at any, any given moment around 5,000 people watching and around 150,000 for the entire report. Who do you think, who is that audience? Who wants to watch um, your stream from the comfort of the room or a newsroom? It, I mean, it's all different people. It's everybody. It's people who are online who see the link and are interested. Some people don't necessarily even know what it's about. They might be compelled to keep watching and some people know exactly what I'm doing and are hell-bent on making sure they don't miss a beat. I love being in Union Square Park and one of my favorite memories of being here is uh, it was election night four years ago. And I was here with my colleague, Benjamin Walker, and we were hearing the news up on, there was like a big screen right over there where they could see the results coming in, and everyone was kind of freaking out. There was a giant American flag people were throwing up, and it was my job to photograph event for the public radio station where I worked. But every time I took a photo, 
on my own, maybe like about a hundred photos. I'd have to sit down, connect to the Union Square Wi-Fi, and then upload. And it was like the slowest thing in the world. And I just had to, I just felt like, oh, there's gotta be a better way to do this. So, I love hearing about live streaming. Something else this makes me think of is that moment where you are, you are the one documenting and you feel this um, responsibility, like, it just, it feels, it makes you feel like more observant and more alive than you do all the other days. What's that like for you to be a live stream, to be the storyteller in every moment that you're going through for 14 hours? It's like my brain shuts down. You know, when the... When the, when the march starts, when the event kicks in, if it's a conference, and I'm in, you know, I'm live tweeting, or shooting photos, then everything else sort of disappears, and my, literally the event is my sole focus, I can't think of anything else at the time, you know. Is it exhausting? Uh, actually, no, it's, it's strange, I get, uh, doing other events make me tired much more quickly than, than being out here, I mean, the, the day I, I did 21 hours straight, I actually hadn't slept for two days, and I, you know, aside from, uh, obviously being a bit malnourished throughout the day and getting cramps, totally able to keep going, in fact, the only reason I stopped was because everything seemed to have calmed down, and, you know, if I didn't, I would kept going. Do you feel like this is the work that, that you were meant to discover in your life? Like, do you feel like everything about your skill set has drawn you here? Or do you see, do you see this evolving further? That's a good question. There's, I've, I've had a lot of jobs where I felt like, wow, everything I've learned I've led me, uh, has led me here. And I, I, I wonder if, you know, everyone sort of feels that way at some point. So, for all I know, it could lead me here where I'm at, and I can take this and, and do something with it. Or this might just be another stepping stone to something even greater. 
when you hear from other people about the work you're doing, like what have you heard from other journalists, what feedback has been most memorable to you? Everyone seems to tell me that I'm in this great place and uh, that makes me really happy and I get a lot of support from a lot of really respectable journalists and uh, people who work in the field and that's, that really helps keep me going. But at the same time, what I do doesn't pay the bills, and uh, that's when it gets hard and I'm thinking, okay, so, you know, everyone seems to appreciate what I'm doing, and they, they, they tell me that you keep, do, keep going, you can do it. Meanwhile, I'm like, yeah, that, that's really great that you, like, support it and everything, and, uh, when I, when I get a steady income from this, I'll, I'll, I'll agree with you a bit more. Don't some people disagree with what you're doing and caution you against it? The, the people who, who disagree with what I'm doing are the people who are the people who want to control information I've found. You know, I, I, I was attacked several times during protests and it's typically by protesters. It's, it's it's pretty interesting. I, I've never been arrested, and people question me for not being arrested. The protesters are like, oh, he must be a cop or something. Because journalists get arrested all the time. They do. And when it comes to the when it comes to the politics of an event, I found that a lot of people want to control their flow of information to make sure they have the, they have, they have the power to send a certain message. And they don't like it when an impartial observer comes in and tells them what's really going on. Have you been arrested in your capacity as a journalist? I've never been arrested, but I've been roughed uh, up a bit by cops. Specifically, what happened? Oh man, several incidents. I mean, we've, we've had a uh, Police officers in Chicago surround our car at gunpoint and pull us out and interrogate us. They took credit card numbers, horrible 
traumatizing event. I said, uh, Oh, I think I saw that on the news. Yeah, that was on the news. <laughs> With exclusive details about you to the underground, is NBC5 slash apocalypse. Thanks, Stefan. All night last night, we heard from dozens of protesters and independent journalists about raids and traffic stops taking place across the city. Now, that kind of allegation is hard for us to confirm unless or until we see the kind of video that came into us from around 2 this morning. Sometimes they are just facts. So, is it a fact that many officers break the rules and are not held accountable? Yes, that is a fact. Does that mean that I am holding a personal vendetta against the entire police force or police everywhere? Absolutely not. So, you know, I wouldn't participate in an anti-police anything, but I will, I will be the first one to recognize that all too often, authority figures 
of all types, not just police officers, are not held accountable for the crimes they commit. When I was a public radio journalist, I couldn't even walk through Occupy Wall Street without risking losing my job. When in your capacity as the person documenting the protest, you sometimes feel like you're being looped in with the protesters. Yeah, and, it, and it's funny because people seem to, these, these, I guess, mainstream journalists, they don't go and get the story anymore. I don't, I, you know, and I lived a life a hundred years ago, so I don't know exactly what they used to do, but it was my understanding that if you wanna, if you wanna tell the story and you wanna know what's going on, you have to be in there and you have to be talking to people. You can't stand outside, point a camera at it, and say, well, here we are, looking at a group of people, they look pissed. I'm here in Union Square Park with Tim Poole. He is the future of journalism, say many. He was featured in Time's Person of the Year. Seen him in Spin, GQ, and New Yorker. The work he's doing, people find really interesting. Why do you think this kind of live streaming media is, is striking a chord in this media landscape? It's, it's a combination of things. The first is the, the new technology, the low cost, and the ease of access. I essentially can go out, uh, I should say I actually have broadcast global events, international events, using nothing but a cell phone to hundreds of thousands of people. So, at, the, at this weekend's Radio Vision Festival, you put out a really cool piece of technology that the whole room was growing at. It was your own personal drone. Tell us about that, that device and, and how you utilized it in the field. So this goes along with another part of my, my personal goals, and that's making journalism easier to access. So a friend of mine, Jeff Shively, we began working on a drone so that we could make a very cheap an effective way to get live coverage 
for, for, for any event, be it a fire, a flood, or a protest. We took a drone that you can buy at Bookstown or any store. It's called the Air Drone Parrot. And we did a little bit of hacking. And we set it up so that I can broadcast live over the internet. The idea being that helicopters and air coverage is very expensive. And you rely on a major organization to get that uh, to get that coverage. But now, hopefully with the work we're doing, and as soon as the federal drone ban is lifted, we can create a plan so that any journalist can easily spend a couple hundred bucks and film, get, get live air coverage from wherever they may be. There's a federal drone ban? Yes, there is. Until 2015, um, Barack Obama has stated that he wants the FAA to up up the skies by 2015. And then we're going to start seeing, uh, it's going to get interesting. I mean, uh, drone technology, uh, and well, I should first clarify that people assume drones are these big airplanes with guns, but drone generally refers to remote control aerial. Um, technically it could even be a, a ground device. But these, these small quadcopters, octocopters, these devices are, are here now. And what not for the federal drone ban, I, would, I think we'd be seeing a lot more of them flying around above our heads. So, come 2015, we'll be everywhere. And they'll deliver our tacos, right? That's the big story, the taco copter, but I don't think so. That would be too heavy. So unless you've got a thirty, twenty thousand dollar drone, you're looking at a flight time of maybe half an hour, and it's gonna be able to carry maybe a taco, maybe, maybe two. But I think more is it. I think we're going to see drones right off the bat. The first and most obvious thing is Korean uh, papers, legal documents. You can easily watch a drone at your window. It'll fly and land and dock and recharge and hand your, your legal documents to your partner company, things like that. So, uh, can you talk about an instant with a time that you've used the drone and, and captured something you felt like you couldn't have 